The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. Recognize that music? It's among the favorite scores of today's guest. The Hattiesburg, Mississippi native has been acting, writing, and directing for the past decade while holding down a position of assistant professor at the University of Southern Mississippi. Now, while some people call themselves filmmakers, our guest really does it all. Writing, producing, directing, and acting uh, in at least 10 films and, and has acted in uh, close to 50 other uh, credits through the years. Uh, he's created films such as The Hollow, The Historian, and his latest effort, which we'll be talking about later, uh, a film called Hollowed Ground, uh, which he also stars in. Now, with close to 50 credits to his acting resume, I think he's really qualified to speak to us about what he likes about film scores, and so I'm really looking forward to this today. I hope that uh, all our listeners will please join me in welcoming Miles Dolak to the program. Hi, Miles. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And again, my uh, sincere thanks for you joining us today. Um, usually with these uh, programs, we uh, we start them all off the, the same way, and that is that perhaps you can uh, give us a little bit of an idea of, uh, of the early days, I guess you will. Tell us a little bit about yourself and growing up and, and you know, the, and just kind of that stuff, the first half of your life, I guess. Sure. Well, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I grew up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, I have loved movies and acting uh, since 1981 when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark for the very first time at the old Hardy Street Cinema uh, okay. in Hattiesburg. Um, I had the good fortune to perform on stage in Hattiesburg uh, with my local community theater, Hattiesburg Civic Light Opera. Uh, went to a high school that had um, a very engaged drama program at the time, Hattiesburg High School, under the direction of Michael Marks. We traveled all over the country for drama festivals, and wow. speech and debate tournaments, and um, went to the Southeastern Theater Conference with uh, one-act plays uh, on a couple of occasions, which was just 
absolutely uh, critical in in my development as a as an not only as an artist but as a human being. And mm-hmm. after after high school, I went to the North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston Salem, North Carolina. Um, wonderful, celebrated uh, drama program there. And then I I graduated and did my time in in New York and in Los Angeles and 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 did some cool things, but didn't get much traction. Um, and while I was out in L.A., uh, I met a professor of early Christianity out at UCLA, a man named Scott Barchi. It was a subject I had always been interested in, and he suggested I started taking, start taking some classes uh, with him through UCLA Extension, and I did. I got interested in academics, hmm. um, and ultimately, uh, through a series of circumstances, wound up getting a master's degree, wound up getting a Ph.D. Uh, at Tulane University in New Orleans, right about the time after Katrina, when that p- production boom really hit in South Louisiana. Yeah. And um, acting sort of found me again. I, I had sort of stepped away, not not left the dream behind by any means, but but had sort of resigned myself to the fact that it may not happen. And then and then there it was again. And I started working with some wonderful independent filmmakers and and, and getting some opportunities to, to do some TV work and, and things sort of snowball from there. It's interesting how life's events sometimes, especially when you can look back to see how one thing led to another, which led to another. And it maybe doesn't make sense at the time, but uh, but as a whole, it does. That's that's really interesting, your journey of how you got back to that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. what, what was it that was there any I think I'm going to know the answer on this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what was it that was there a particular moment or film or something like that that really sparked your interest in film music? Um, well, I, I grew up on, on John Williams scores, you know, I loved Raiders. Uh, mm-hmm. I loved, I loved ET. I loved star Wars. Uh, and, and, you know, those scores are just so iconic and, um, inextricable from the source material. And, you know, you, you can, you can immediately hear them in your head and they evoke, uh, a, a certain, vision or, or, or image either from the film or where you were when you saw the film for the first time. And I think that's what, what great film scores to do. They, they live on far past, um, the moment of, of, of watching the, the film, you know? And so, um, and I've always been a fan, um, and a, a real fan and fascinated by how music, um, enhances, um, and supports, a feature narrative or, or, or a television narrative. And, you know, I, yeah. I grew up, I grew up watching Miami vice, which really revolutionized the way that music was used on television. Um, and, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I've got great musician friends and collaborators that I've, that I've known for years and years and worked with through the years. And, and, um, music is just one of those things that speaks to, to my soul, you know, and, and, uh, so uh, the music in my films and in the films I love uh, is I, I've always found to be, you know, supremely important to the whole. Yeah. If you're if you're ever fortunate enough, and I know you have to uh, to see a rough cut of a film without music laid in yet, it, a, a lot of times it just falls flat, doesn't it? Without it really, without that support of the of the music. It really does. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I kind of figured it would be uh, uh, Raiders and, and John Williams, so that's not a big surprise, which also <laughs> is a great segue to the first cue that we were going to play. 
uh, and you and I had talked previously, and I and I tend to agree with you, uh, uh, your thoughts on this. The the first one I wanted to look at, you had picked, uh, was Jaws, a, a John Williams creation. Talk to us a little bit about why that made your list of favorites. Well, uh, there's so many great things about Jaws. Um, it, it really is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, and I love how simple it is in in so many respects. I mean, we all know the story, or most of us know the, the famous story of how the shark POV came into being because, you know, Bruce, the mechanical shark, never worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what a simple yet absolutely brilliant thing that Spielberg decided instead <laughs> – to show us what the shark is seeing and far more terrifying, uh, of course, than ever actually seeing the shark itself. And, and the score is like that as well. I mean, this bottom, bottom, it's, it's two notes effectively, uh, getting faster, um, as the shark, you know, moves closer to its prey. It's so simplistic. And there's a wonderful video of, of, Williams and Spielberg out there somewhere. I think you might be able to find it on YouTube where I've seen it. I know where you're yeah. going. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Where, Go ahead. where Williams, Williams plays it for the first time. And Spielberg's like, what, what, what is that? And then, <laughs> and, and then he, you know, he starts playing it faster and adding the accents and all these kinds of things. And, and, and finally sells Spielberg on why this is perfect for, for what he's looking for. So, yeah. and those are in just, the days too, when, when, uh, when all you had was, uh, you know, basically a piano, you couldn't, you didn't have a bunch of electronics to be able to simulate what a whole score would sound like, what a whole orchestra would sound like. So you had to, right. you had to have a lot of faith in the composer. Believe me, this will sound better when it's a whole orchestra. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Well, let's, uh, yeah, let's let's go ahead and play that. This is the main theme from uh, Jaws, a, a classic in its own right, and uh, this is a, a cue written by the maestro John Williams.
I'm curious because you do so many uh, so many facets of filmmaking. Is it as an actor, I'm trying to envision this. Uh, is it hard to direct yourself or to direct a film that you're also acting in? Um, it really requires you having a lot of faith in your team. And I do have a great team of folks surrounding me, um, which includes my my amazing, brilliant and talented wife and producer on the last couple of films, uh, Lindsay Ann Williams, mm-hmm. um, uh, Wesley O'Mary, um, Michael Williams, who DP'd the uh, Hallowed Ground and is and is DPing the new one. Um, folks that you really trust are going to give you the skinny, and and that they're not going to pull any punches. And folks that you can say, uh, "Hey, you think we got it?" And they're going to tell you, "Yeah, we got it," or "No, we need to do it again." Because the fact of the matter is, in indie world, you can't always watch playback. You hope to watch playback, but but you can't always do that. Yeah. And then constructing the schedule in a way that um, that allows you to, you know, I always like to start a show maybe the first day or a couple of days on a shoot where I'm not working as an actor. So the, the crew and, it, and, the, and the project can sort of get its footing and, and lay that foundation and get some momentum before I step in front of the camera. Um, but, yeah, it is, it is challenging. But uh, the fact of the matter is I started writing and directing films initially – to give myself more opportunities as an actor, because that's, that's my first and deepest love. And um, so I was, I was not going to, to not write roles for myself. That was just something that I, (laughs) I had to do. Would you ever consider though, uh, directing something that you're not acting in? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I've directed theater. I've directed theater that I, that I've not appeared in. Um, Okay. You know, actually directing theater and acting in, the show is, is even trickier than directing a film. But um, yes, I would absolutely consider that. And I've really come to love and appreciate and, and, and maybe even, uh, you know, finally completely understand the, the, the medium of, of directing uh, in its own right. And so, uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would welcome the opportunity to just direct something that I, yeah. that I didn't perform in. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I now that I kind of understand more about, what the role of a director is having been in the industry. I, my hat's off to you. I don't know how you do that and everything else. I really don't because it's, it's a, there's a lot. A director does more than just sit there and want, like you say, and watch the playback and say, uh, move here and say this different. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. you're, you're the, you're the general of the entire deal. I mean, and it's just, it's amazing how you uh, can, can pull that off. Um, Another classic film that you mentioned uh, that I and I haven't listened to this in a long time, but it was good to do that you know, when, in preparing for this. Uh, you also uh, chose the main theme from the film The Godfather, which is yeah, right. just amongst their, you know, the tops of, of American cinema. No question about it. Tell us a little bit about uh, your thinking on choosing that uh, that score and that theme. Well, the what I love about uh, the Godfather first and foremost is it's just brilliantly acted from top to bottom. And of course, uh, the shooting of it, which was so revolutionary by, by the great Gordon Willis and, and, and Coppola and the underexposed negatives and the shadows. And it, it's what a, just what a treasure of American cinema. Um, the Godfather score, uh, as opposed to say the John Williams score in Jaws is meant to support and accent what's going on in the performances and on the screen. Whereas John Williams score is, is building the drama in and of itself. 
the Nino Rota score in The Godfather, you get these solo instruments, violins and whatnot, which are sort of weaving through the spaces in between the lines and in between the images and just really lending this pillow of support, this musical pillow of support, whereas William's score is is driving and and hitting you in the face with the drama and 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 very brilliantly done but but wrote score is much different and more haunting uh and spectral uh and, and and really creates this this sort of veneer that that wafts through the whole proceeding and it's just beautifully done uh, and mm. i think it's perfect perfect for what's going on in that film not a thing i can add to that so let's let the music do the talking for us this is the main theme from the film the godfather written by nina rota
Now, you know, sometimes like when you have a more than one child and when you ask, you know, which one is your favorite child? That's like an impossible question to answer, but I'm, <laughs> but, but I'm going to ask one that's kind of like that. What, what is it that you enjoy the most? Is it the, the, the writing, the directing or the acting? Um, I, I think it's still the acting. Um, I mean, I, I really do. I really do find a great deal of fulfillment in, in all of it. Um, you know, the creation of worlds as a writer, is just just such a profoundly fulfilling and powerful thing. And, and, um, and then, as you say, uh, getting to work with actors and direct actors and, 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 and to to design scenes uh, as a director. And then, and and then the editing process, which is maybe my favorite part of directing is when there's no more time constraint or, uh, you, you know, you're, you're, you're not quite under the same kind of limitations that you are on set, especially in an independent film. You have what you have and you have to mold this sculpture out of an existing lump of clay. You know, you, there's yeah. nothing more, nothing less. Um, but I think it's still the acting uh, that that is most fulfilling for me. Well, and you're not under the pressure of like a studio said, look, we got to meet this release date. I mean, right. I, 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 that helps, I guess, too, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, we do have, you know, when we have distribution deals, uh, well, you know, we yeah. still have deadlines, but but they're oftentimes a bit more forgiving than they would be in the studio system. So that's we've been able to work with distributors, especially Keith Leppard at Uncorked, you know, who understands what independent filmmaking is about and and has been really terrific about giving us the time to deliver the best product. Yeah. OK. Well, you uh, you mentioned on your list, and I I'm probably like one of the three people on Earth that hasn't seen Lord of the Rings, so I so I can't uh, I I can't relate to it at all. But you had mentioned that uh, you loved the music that was written for Lord of the Rings, and we were going to uh, play one of the main titles from Lord of the Rings. Tell us a little bit about your uh, love affair with that series of films and the music that accompanies it. Well, the the I mean the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy I think is. I really think it's one of the great cinematic achievements. Uh, and um, I mean, what, what Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens did down there in New Zealand, I mean, this is real magic. I mean, it, and it's magic along the lines of the first Star Wars trilogy or the first two Godfather movies. It's as good as anything out there. And, and I grew up with Tolkien and, and uh, you know, the, these stories and these books are, are, are just so fantastic. And, um, and when you think of this story, um, this titanic struggle between good and evil, uh, you know, you knew you would need uh, an immediately memorable kind of anthemic theme uh, to mm-hmm. go along with it, um, along the line of the Raiders March or the Star Wars theme or, you know, the, the Superman thumbnails. Everything's John Williams. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that's OK. People listen to this program know everything for me is John Barry. So we all got our favorite. That's OK. <laughs> uh, so uh, but this one is not. This one is Howard Shore. And um, and I just thought I think he captured the other thing he does in the score, which I think is, is so wonderful, is to weave in those those Celtic themes um, that that seemed to resonate so strong and true in, in the Lord of the Rings story. And, um, which of course, Tolkien was, a a professor of Norse mythology and, and Celtic mythology. And, and, um, and a lot of that, uh, is, 
percolates through the narrative of the Lord of the Rings and and sure embraced that and and weaved it into the score and I think what he came up with was just perfect. Wow. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is a uh, the main theme from Lord of the Rings, and it's written by the maestro Howard Shore.
as a as an independent filmmaker, that to me, I guess, probably carries some unique challenges that someone making a film through the studio system doesn't have to deal with. What? Because um, you've actually, you know, you've been very successful in independently producing and making your own films. What What are the special challenges that you face in order to do that? Uh, the biggest challenge is always the lack of time and money. Mm. Um, so working outside the studio system affords you uh, some measure of creative freedom that that most directors, you know, unless your name is Steven Spielberg or Peter Jackson or whatever, are not mm. afforded within the studio system. But um, but you're always up against the clock. You're always up against the budget. Um you know, our last film, Hallowed Ground, was shot in 12 days, 12 wow. days, and um, which is the shortest shooting schedule for a feature I've ever worked on. That was close to two uh, hours, too, wasn't it, I thought? Or yeah, maybe, or, hour, yeah, hour and 57 minutes, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. geez. So um, that's very that's very hard, you know, and, yeah. and you're, you know, you're working 12-hour days, and and, and I don't believe in, you know, some indie filmmakers, even in, in some studio projects, you know, you hear about these horrific 16, 18 hour days. And I just I just won't do that. I just think it debilitates your crew and your cast. And so we try very hard to stick to that that 12 hour number, you know, mm-hmm. from from call to rap. Um, but that presents some very significant challenges. And, and there 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 are things that you run up against that money can't buy your way out of because you don't have it. So you have to think of alternative creative solutions to work around the problem. And whether that be uh, in an effect shot or, or a stunt situation or um, you name it, you know, there, there are just there are so many things that you have to constantly be thinking about. OK, what is the creative solution to this? Because we can't afford that, you know, that effect shot. We can't afford to do gunpowder squibs or we can't afford to do this, that, or the other thing. So we have to think of another solution. We've done squib work in two film now, two films. Now we haven't been able to do gunpowder squibs for budgetary reasons. So we have done practical squib effects, which involve like, you know, garden pumps and bicycle hoses and these sorts of things. And, (laughs) and, and somehow, I mean, you know, it's (laughs) right. It's real. It's MacGyvered. Okay. But, but somehow it, it works. I mean, and if you watch the squib work in, in the hollow or in, um, hallowed ground, you know, you, you can't really tell the difference. Um, and that's just because we have wonderful creative people that work for us and everybody gets on the same page and, you know, the team comes together and we make it happen. Wow. That's great. Would, um, is it a goal of yours that, that one of these films gets noticed and that you could maybe get the helm of a, of a, of a studio film at some point? Is that like the goal or is, are you happy kind of doing what you're doing? I mean, I would, I guess whether it's a studio film or, or, or whatever, I mean, the, the goal would be to, to be able to helm a film with, with a, with a significant budget. And, and by that, I mean, you know, a million five or more or something, a, a, a budget that really allows me some, some room to, to play and to do the things that, I simply can't do at the end. Like the gunpowder squibs, I guess. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Um, The next film on your list is my particular John Williams favorite, which is surprising to a lot of people. 
because I, I, a lot of times I don't connect to his big bombastic yeah. scores. I mean, I like them. Don't get me wrong, but I, but this one, this one cut me to the core because to me it really captured what was going on in the hearts and minds of the people in the film more so than the 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 actions around it. Now, the film we're talking about is Schindler's List, uh, which which you chose as one of your favorites, and it's one of mine as well. Uh, we're going to play the main theme here. Tell us a little bit about your thinking on uh, on choosing that one. Well, I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. I mean, this is, a, this is a film of incredible, raw, visceral power, a, a very important film, and, and – and maybe maybe Spielberg's best. It's it's not perfect. Um, some elements of the ending I, I didn't really care for, but wow, when it's great, it is utterly great. Um, it's the best work Ray Fiennes has ever done. The best mm-hmm. thing Liam Neeson has ever done. Um, the bold choice to shoot it in black and white. Um, and you needed a score that, as you as you rightly point out, was not didn't beat you over the head. It wasn't bombastic. It it should not never feel celebratory in the way like the Raiders March does. Uh, you needed something um, that was almost ghostly, that that almost felt like the, the spirits of these poor souls who were mm. experienced this, this, who experienced this horrific tragedy. And then he got Yitzhak Perlman, of course, to play on it. Um, yeah. Icy and, on the cake. It's, and I just think it's exquisite. Yeah. Let's have a listen to this. A uh, fabulous piece of music. The main theme from Schindler's List, written by John Williams.
You know, looking over your uh, your your history and your uh, background, I found it interesting. Not only the fact that you're an assistant professor at Southern Miss in film and, and artistic things that that's kind of a given. You can understand that. But did I read this right? And, and also in history of Greco-Roman world. What <laughs> yes, I mean, my- what? How did you get interested in that? That's I mean, that's fascinating. Well, my yeah, my PhD is in ancient history, uh, huh. in the history of the, in the, of the Greco-Roman world, and uh, I have always been interested, especially in religion and um, and and early Christianity, ancient religion, um, and it goes back to, I mean, it, it's a thing. I grew up, I grew up Catholic, and um, you know, I I spent a lot of time thinking about these issues even as a kid. I think it's part partly the reason I was so infatuated with Raiders is because it's like you know, spooky religious history. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, and then when I was out in LA and I started taking these classes with Dr. Barchi at UCLA in early Christianity and, um, Paul of Tarsus and, and the historical Jesus and, and these sorts of things, I finally realized that there was something that fascinated me as much as filmmaking and acting. And, and it was this, it was this thing. And, you know, a lot of a lot of folks in this industry will tell you if there's anything else you love in the world, you need to be doing that because this industry is very hard and fraught with disappointment and rejection. And, mm. you know, you got to have rhinoceros hide to to survive it. So there was a moment there where I thought, hey, I, you know, I could do this instead. And, and I'm just I just thank God that I'm I'm now doing it in addition to um <clears throat> but yeah, these these uh, issues are profoundly important to me, and and they they sort of imbue a lot of my films. I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of religion and and philosophical kind of thinking, and um, hopefully a bit of social conscience in in my films, and that is um, you know that is part and parcel of of my interest in in ancient religion. Yeah. Well, we've gone from ancient to let's look at the future. A, a, <laughs> a film you uh, 
chose for another favorite score was uh, Blade Runner, which oddly enough, I'm trying to remember, wasn't it the the, the original? Didn't it? What, didn't it take place in 2017 or something like that or 20? I'm trying uh, to remember. It was like we've passed the year that it was. You yeah, know what I'm saying, maybe, right? Maybe, maybe. I thought it was like 20, 20. Maybe it did. No, it was I, like, you know, again, this was made like in 1981 or something. And it right, was saying right. in Los Angeles 2017. Yeah. I think it was something like that. I'll have to look yeah. it up. But yeah. Um, and I love this music, too. It's, and it's not, you know, traditional by any sense of the imagination. But one that we did talk about was the love theme about, about uh, uh, Rachel that you wanted to play from Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about Valangelis' uh, score and why you uh, wanted to choose that one. Well, I mean, what's fantastic about Vangelis' score of Blade Runner is it it perfectly <clears throat> mirrors the the visual aesthetic. Which the visual aesthetic was entirely new. I mean, a, a lot of people don't realize this now because a hundred films have copied it. But what but what Ridley Scott and Jordan Chenoweth did with that visual aesthetic and palette in that film, nobody had seen anything like it. Um, it was so visually arresting, and you ju- you had to you had to have a score uh, that from an auditory perspective matched that you couldn't Mm. have a a traditional score for this film. So it makes perfect sense that they went out and got Vangelis and, and, and what he delivered is, is just this exquisite companion to, to the visual palette and not, not what you might have expected, not what is traditional, but it perfectly accentuates that visual aesthetic that Ridley created. All right. Well, let's have a listen to this. This is uh, from the film Blade Runner. Uh, the cue is actually called Love Theme, and it's written by Vangelis.
as we've mentioned, you've you've got a lot of a lot of irons in the fire, and there's a film that you just recently released that I had the pleasure of being able to watch a couple of months ago, called uh, Hollowed Ground. Why don't you? Uh, we're going to play some uh, cues from this as well, but tell us a little bit about the film and uh, uh, that you'd like us to know about it and you know, where it's available and things like that. Sure, sure. So so Hallowed Ground is the story of a married couple, uh, Alice and Vera, uh, whose relationship is on the rocks because one of the partners, uh, Alice, has had an affair. And so uh, they travel out to uh, this beautiful, secluded, idyllic cabin uh, on Native American soil where they just they're just trying to sort of decompress and and reconnect and rekindle their relationship. Um, and through a series of circumstances, they they learn that the the family, the clan that lives next door uh, are not very nice. And uh, they uh, are obsessive about uh, protecting their property and. Um, uh, Alice and Vera unintentionally stumble onto their property, uh, which uh, the next door neighbors uh, do not like uh, none too much, and um, which leads to things you know beginning to unravel and the the revelation that there has been a century plus old blood feud brewing between the Native American owners of the property on which Alice and Vera are staying and the Barham clan who live next door, <clears throat> who uh, also have this really terrifying cult. And Alice and Vera find themselves right in the middle of, of this feud, which is uh, begins to sort of implode over the course of the action of the film. Yeah, now you, you, you seem to have an affinity for, uh, for thrillers and horror and things of that nature. Is there a reason why you, a lot of your films seem to, uh, to have that theme? Well, I, uh, you know, I enjoyed those types of films uh, growing up. Um, I'm a huge fan of the, the, the great horror movies of the 1970s, like The Exorcist and The Omen and The Sentinel and Rosemary's Baby. And, mm -hmm. and so um, I think some of my films do do hearken to that, that that sort of wonderful character driven slow burn horror. Um, it is also just a fact of the industry that horror as a genre sells pretty well. So as an independent yeah. filmmaker, if you're trying to craft things that uh, are, are going to do well enough to allow you to make the next picture, horror's a pretty good choice. So that's, that's kind of how I originally dabbled into, to the horror genre. Plus there, there seems to be a real thirst for that uh, uh, genre out, out there, which right. I guess plays to, to your advantage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, it allows me to play with the with the religious themes, as as I mentioned before, you know, as I as I did in Demons and and in Hallowed Ground to a slightly lesser extent. Well, you mentioned um, uh, The Omen is one of those films that influenced you, and that was the, the last cue we wanted to play from your uh, list of favorites. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about Jerry Goldsmith's uh, score for The Omen? I, I just love the score of The Omen, and I love uh, that Goldsmith uses voices right um and latin uh it, it's uh it's just perfect it's like um it's like a church choir gone to hell which is exactly <laughs> what's going on in the film um and it is it is so haunting and and soul-stirring at the same time and um i, I just think it's perfect 
So, uh, yeah, let's hear it. Okay, yeah, this is the uh, uh, the theme from the film Omen, and it's written by Jerry Goldsmith. Well, now we come back to uh, to hollowed ground. Now you you had shared uh, three different cues with me. I think we'll we'll uh, probably for simplistic sake just go ahead and play them back to back. Can you tell us a little bit about what you uh, you sent us from uh, from your film and uh, why you wanted to include those uh, in today's program? Sure. Um, so one of the cues is score, and the other two are original songs. Um, okay. Um, I'll talk about the score first. This is this is the burial mound theme. So um, on uh, in hallowed ground, there is a, a Choctaw burial mound on the property where Alice and Vera are staying and they go out to visit it. And the character of Vera is an archaeologist who studies Native American tradition. And they visit this burial mound, which is a very spiritual, magical kind of place, especially for Vera. And Vera explains to Alice the Choctaw burial traditions and the traditions of of bone pickers, which if you don't know about, you should absolutely look up. This is 
fascinating and macabre and immensely powerful. Mm. Um, and she, Vera talks about the spirituality of the place and that, you know, if you just take a deep breath, if you just breathe in the air, you can feel something. And, and so I needed, I needed a score cue there, uh, that really conveyed all that stuff that was, that was both, um, uh, soothing and, and haunting and a, a little foreboding kind of all at the same time. And my brilliant composer, Clifton Hyde, delivered just that, complete with Choctaw flutes, real, wow. uh, real authentic uh, Choctaw flutes. And uh, you've worked with him I before, mean, I think, on your other films, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. He has composed – this is the third film for which he composed the score. So that's that's the burial mound cue, and um, and I really think it, 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 it works beautifully. Um, the other two are songs uh, – and I, and I wanted to include the songs because one of the things that Clifton and I always do is or, or try to do is to write original songs for our films. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up watching Miami Vice and and, you know, it revolutionary. It revolutionized the way that songs were used uh, in in dramatic narrative mm-hmm. um, and especially pop songs and rock songs. Right. I mean. Nobody can think of In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins now without thinking about Sonny Crockett and Rico Tubbs driving down the, the strip in Miami in Sonny's Ferrari. So mm. uh, so the so using songs as opposed to just score in movies is something that I, that I always like to do. So these two songs, one of them is called The Meaning of Us, and it is Alice and Vera's theme. Really, and it, and it's a song about how um, even people who are are desperately in love, deeply in love, oftentimes have such a a, a difficult time overcoming obstacles or, or overcoming um, you know the peccadilloes of the human psyche. It, like making a relationship work long term is supremely hard, and we're always trying to be better for our partners and open up more for our partners and, and show our partners who we are. And, and we just, we hope uh, that they'll understand and accept it. And, and that's really what this song is about. It's about, mm-hmm. it's about love and it's about forgiveness and it's about wanting so bad um, for your partner to truly and deeply understand and accept you uh, and to know the meaning of, of, of what this whole relationship is. So that's the meaning of us. It plays uh, over um, a scene that begins with Alice and Vera dancing uh, and then devolves into an argument, um, which is uh, oftentimes the trajectory of relationships. And you hope after the argument you can pull it back together again. Um, right. So that's that song. Uh, the other song is called Neshoba. It plays over the end credits. Um, Neshoba, uh, who is uh, – an important figure, a small role in the film, but an important figure who sort of looms over the entire proceedings. Neshoba means walking wolf in the Choctaw language. And, you know, end credit music is, I think it's so important to me and I, and, and somewhat undervalued because whatever plays over the end credits, it's the last thing you're going to remember when you're walking out of the theater. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the, the end credit music or the end credit song has to, has to be, arresting it it has to grab you um and this song i'm really proud of this song um i think it it works really well lyrically and what clifton created 
musically, I, I think is really special. It, it has harmonica by, uh, by Paul Linden. Um, we recorded this and we, and we put it on tape and then put it back in, in, in the digital machine. Uh, so it has that, that John Lennon tape hiss sound to it, the vocal. Huh. Yeah. Um, but it's a song about, um, it's about spirits. It's about it's about you know um, places where where the past lives on and where the dead live and where maybe you find some measure of redemption for all the places that you know you fell short. And uh, I'm and I'm so glad to hear you uh, talk about the importance of end credit music because I, I mean I couldn't agree more. It you. Think about how many people get up and leave during the the end credits in a theater, or uh, if they're watching at home, they just turn it off. I I, I can't stand that. First of all, I yeah. want to stand. I want to read the the credits out of respect for all the people that worked on it. Yeah. And second of all, it makes it a much more pleasant experience. Obviously, if the music accompanying it is really uh, special. So I'm I'm really delighted to hear you say that. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's l- let's listen to these three then. Um, Burial Ground, which is a, a an incidental cue from the film Hollow Ground, and then two songs. The Meaning of Us and, and let's see, uh, Nashoba, is that how it's Neshoba. pronounced? Yes. Nashoba, yes. Nashoba. Uh, and we'll play all those back to back to back, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back with Miles.
the soil runs thick with memory of folks long dead and gone. Hear a wolf howls at a blood red moon, and a night bird screams a song. There's a glory in recollection, and a wound that lingers on. And the earth shall hold the story here and young. Well, we packed our bags and hit the road along the trail to the redeemed.
So that film is now um, it's available on demand, I believe, right? It is available on demand and uh, on all the major streaming platforms, um, Amazon, Google Play, iTunes, uh, Fandango Now, VHX, Steam, uh, wow. you name it. If you want a DVD, you can order a DVD on Amazon. Um, so, yeah, it's out there. Um, just punch it, punch it into the search engine of your favorite streaming platform. It is not on Netflix. <laughs> a lot of folks ask us about that, and, and that's because – uh, Netflix doesn't pay very much for independent films and, uh, they want a big long contract. And once your film goes on Netflix, you're not going to get as much play, uh, on the per click sites, uh, which is very important to independent films mm. for generating money. So, right. so you, we, we always, you know, you always wait as long as possible to put something on Netflix because, uh, if you do it at all, because yeah. it basically, it basically cuts out the revenue stream of, of all those other platforms. Okay. And, uh, you're, uh, you're never one to just kind of sit around and do nothing. You're, uh, you're talking to us from Atlanta. So you're, you're working on a project now and what's, what's in the immediate future for you, Miles? Uh, well, working this week on a, on a wonderful show in, in Atlanta, which I can say nothing about, but, but you'll be hearing more about it down the line. Um, and then, uh, as an actor, 15, right? As an actor, correct. Right. Um, uh, July 15, we start a new film uh, called The Dinner Party, uh, which is a, a, a really fun sort of horror satire uh, uh, script. Uh, we'll be shooting in Hattiesburg again. We've got a great cast, which includes Bill Sage uh, from Happen Leonard. You might remember. Uh, uh, you might remember him all the way back from American Psycho, and mm. um, uh, and uh, a lot of a lot of wonderful wonderful people that that commonly show up in our films, including, uh, the wonderful Lindsay Ann Williams and, <laughs> um, and, uh, and others. Um, and, uh, this, this one's fun. This one's going to be, uh, you know, hearkening back a little bit again to those seventies horror movies, a lot of practical blood effects and gore effects. Um, and we're, we're really going to try to go for it, uh, in this one, um, wow. with our practical effects and, and, uh, so looking forward to that. Uh, so that's that's the next thing on the horizon. Right. Well, we'll look forward to that, and we'll certainly keep our eyes out for it. Uh, Miles, you've been very generous with your time, and I, I must tell you, I've just thoroughly enjoyed our chat about film music. I, I, I love your passion for it and the way that you describe how it mixes with the with the visuals and with films and how it supports it. So I, you know, grateful for the, for your sharing those opinions with us. Uh, I hope. Uh, Hope in the future maybe we can work together or perhaps we can do another one of these shows and you can list another few favorites of yours. So uh, thanks I, again I, for joining us. Hey, Frank, it's been my absolute pleasure. It's, you know, this, the movies are the great passion of my life and, and music. And when you put those two things together, I'm just, I'm on cloud nine. So I'm, 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 I can do this all day. Excellent. Hey, thanks so much again. That's, uh, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of uh, What's the Score? We appreciate you tuning in. And uh, with that, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score? <laughs>